0: For the love of home.
1: Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
3: You know what? More than ever in this series, I am grateful for red tape because death is so personal. And in radio, we're not supposed to refer to, quote, the listener, but I'm going to do it. You, listener, I have no idea how you want to talk about death. When I was coming up with ideas for the episode, I was like, I'll open with the seventh seal or Bill and Ted's bogus journey or Barber's adagio for strings. Because I don't know. Are you irreverent about death? Does it terrify you? Maybe you're dealing with it right now in your life, and it's horrible, and it's consuming everything. So all I'll do is say that when I have dealt with death in my own life, I strangely took comfort in the rules and regulations and systems of it. Because I'm sad, and I'm angry, and I don't know how I'm supposed to feel, but okay, let's see what the lawyer has to say. How many copies of the death certificate do we need? Let's talk about the arrangements.
4: But it, these conversations are so awkward. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to think about it. This is Dr. Ken Iserson. Uh, Professor Emeritus at the University of Arizona Department of Emergency Medicine. He's written several books on death,
3: including Dust to Death, What Happens to Dead Bodies.
4: You know, e- even in the shoot-em-up cops and robbers and military uh, films and other media uh, where they show lots of deaths and lots of killings, they don't show the funerals. They don't show the dead bodies, except maybe for uh, Game of Thrones. But in general, we don't. A lot of people don't like to go to funerals. That's not part of their life, which is kind of strange because, of course, it is part of life. I'm Nick
3: Capodice. I'm
5: Hannah McCarthy.
3: Today on Civics 101, it is the final chapter of our Life Stages series, Death.
5: Can we start with when someone becomes dead?
3: Right, because we're not going to get into this sort of philosophical question of when is someone, quote, dead, but we can explore when someone is legally dead.
4: Yeah, that's, that's a really, really big part of the interaction of law and death. Who decides that a person is dead and how is that done? Well, in every country, in every locale, the basic rule is a person is dead when a physician says the person is dead.
5: So once they're pronounced dead, is that when the death certificate is issued?
4: Yeah. And usually
3: someone checks the clock and they step back and they say time of death 413 or whatever. But there are two very different ways you can become dead. And Hannah, this can cause some issues regarding what is real. Legal
6: facts and actual facts often but do not always coexist.
3: You all know what that music means. There he is making his last appearance in the series, Dan Casino from Fairleigh Dickinson University.
6: Meaning, the fact that something is legally true does not mean it is actually true. So there's two ways you can be declared dead. So you can either be declared dead, declaration of death happens from either a cop or a medic or a judge, or you can be pronounced dead, which is by a doctor. Now, if you're pronounced dead and a doctor looks at you and says, this guy's dead, there's not much disagreement about that. And the legal fact of your death and the actual fact of your death are two things that are very much in line. Depending on what state you're in, between four and seven years, if you have disappeared and there is no reason why you've disappeared, so the courts are allowed to look in and decide, all right, is this person fleeing debt where they did leave a note and say they were going somewhere. If there's no reason why you should be missing and you haven't turned up at your usual place of business, and there's been effort to find you, and you haven't turned up, and they put an ad in the newspaper asking for you to turn up, and you haven't turned up, guess what? After between four and seven years, you are legally dead, and your heirs can start collecting collect your uh, estate. Uh, The government can start giving Social Security to your survivors. Insurance companies have to pay out. And if you decide after that you want to come back and you are not uh, actually dead, just legally dead, well, you're going to have a hell of a time. Uh, because the Social Security Administration is going to want all that money back that they paid out to your survivors and they might not want to pay back. Uh, the insurance company, while it turns out they cannot actually take the money back from your heirs, it turns out they can sue you if you disappeared on purpose and try and get the money back that they did pay out from you. Uh, and so we have all these cases where people who are, in fact, legally, uh, legally dead but not actually
3: dead do come back.
5: But how often does that actually happen?
3: Dan said there are about 100,000 dead, not dead Americans walking around right now.
5: That is bonkers. But
3: for the majority of Americans, death will happen in a hospital or home or hospice care, and the funeral service will be contacted to assist with what comes next. But Ken told me it wasn't always that way.
4: In the beginning, in the beginning of our country, families experienced uh, births and deaths at home. Uh, they saw many, many, many little children die at birth. Uh, they saw that mothers in large numbers die uh, giving birth or shortly thereafter. Uh, they saw what happened to the bodies. Uh, they uh, helped bury them. They helped prepare them. Uh, and then that changed
3: in fact, the antiquated term undertaker, which I learned you should never call a funeral professional these days, just meant someone who undertook a task. And that person was usually a family friend or a relative who helped you bury the body and make arrangements. That person would contact the local cabinetmaker to make a coffin and maybe a carriage to take it to the gravesite. But that was it. By the way, do you know the difference between a coffin and a casket, Hannah?
5: This isn't a setup for a joke, No, it's is not. It? No. Okay, Nick, what is the difference between a coffin and the casket?
3: It's the shape. A casket is rectangular, and a coffin has that irregular hexagonal coffin shape. That's it? That's it. And as a fun side note, uh, in the 1950s, there were about 500 casket manufacturers in the US, and today, three companies make 70% of the caskets in America.
5: So when did death shift from being the responsibility of families and your local cabinet maker to these funeral professionals?
4: Around and after the Civil War, the funeral industry suddenly became uh, a real entity uh, and embalming was developed. Uh, And and initially it was developed, of course, for uh, the bodies on the battlefield, especially the officers, they wanted to preserve them and send them uh, home and then all of a sudden this body arrived uh, that was supposed to be embalmed uh, and i guess it was uh, to some extent but not in a condition you would want to look at it uh, and then the families began using that routinely uh, and gradually uh, sending the whole process over to the funeral director instead of at home.
3: Embalming becomes more popular when formaldehyde becomes readily available in America. And embalming fluid sellers would travel the country to give these, like, one-day crash courses in how to do it to funeral directors. And this means the body can be preserved, and therefore more time and consideration given to the funeral service. And that's how we get to today, where a funeral director can provide over 130 separate types of services for a family.
5: Wow. Like what?
3: Set up catered meals for services. They contact the friends and family for you about the death, write and place the obituary, arrange the hearse, the church, gravestone, refrigeration, memorial cards, tent at the gravesite, washing, dressing, cremating, casketing, cosmetology, and the big one, embalming. Wow, wow,
5: wow, wow. Is it legally required that a body be embalmed nowadays?
3: Absolutely not. But there are laws about having to embalm or refrigerate or cremate or bury within a certain time window after death. Did you know the U.S. and Canada are the only two countries in the world where embalming is common? Uh, And we bury about 800,000 gallons of embalming fluid every year. Oh. But while all the states have different regulations about burial, embalming is not required as part of your final disposition
5: final disposition?
7: A final disposition is that last step.
3: This is Mandy Stafford. She's a funeral director at Mueller Memorial in St. Paul, Minnesota. Hi, I'm Scott Mueller, president of Mueller Memorial and author of the best-selling book, What to Know Before You Go. I had the pleasure of speaking with two Mueller Memorial employees, Mandy and Taylor Johnson, who's in charge of community relations.
5: I'm glad that we get to hear from people who Actually, do this for a living.
3: Right. And the first thing I asked them to do was to help me clear up any misconceptions about the industry.
8: I'll start, uh, sorry, but I'll start you right there. Um, Scott doesn't like it when we call it an industry. industry. He
3: prefers it to be called a profession.
5: Nick, you always manage to do this. No.
3: no, they were very cool about it. No, no,
8: no. It's a good, it's a perfect example. Perfect example.
3: If I may say, Mandy and Taylor were the exact opposite of that film stereotype of the scary funeral director. Uh, And they both told me about the laws regarding that final disposition, how you end up.
7: Minnesota has what's called a 72-hour law. And so within 72 hours of when someone passes away, the family needs to make the decision between having cremation take place, being able to do the embalming process, or doing what's called a direct burial, which means burial takes place without embalming within the 72 hours. Are those your only three options, embalming, cremation, direct burial?
3: Not even remotely. Every state may have different laws, but in 46 of them, you can be buried in your yard. There are green burials, which are alkalized that break your body down. Uh, You can be buried at sea, not to mention the thousands of things you can do with your cremains. And also, and this is where Mandy and Taylor defied my expectations, they expressly said, you don't even need a casket or a coffin. You need a rigid container if you're cremated, but other than that, anything goes. A cardboard box, a bed sheet.
5: Wow. Can I ask a quick question? I don't know if you know the answer to this. Sure. I had a boyfriend once. Yeah. Who I mean, this is this is just a little fantastical, but his his plan for his death was to be taken out to the forest and and kind of sink into the earth and be taken away by animals. Can you do that? Can you just Let yourself, let your dead body be eaten away and taken away, just lying out there in the middle of the forest? Is that legal?
3: That is not legal. Due to the potential for spreading illness or contaminating a water supply, the body does have to be buried.
5: Oh, what about a Viking
3: funeral? Like a pyre? Yeah. Like a light on a boat via a flaming arrow? Yeah. You can't do that. Uh, And you're not the first to ask. That's actually a common question. Cremation has to be done by a licensed crematorium because uh, fires that we set just can't get hot enough.
5: How hot exactly do crematoriums need to get to reduce the body to ash?
3: Modern crematoriums get up to about 1,800 degrees. There is one and only one outdoor pyre-style crematorium in the U.S. It's in Colorado.
5: Now, take me through the absolute... Bare minimum, someone dies, what do you have to do?
3: Okay, if it happened in your home, unless the person was in hospice care, you have to call the police. They will send a medical examiner and determine the cause of death and write the death certificate. But dealing with the body is probably going to cost you. Lots of life insurance plans help you cover those funeral expenses. Average Burial in America, seven to ten thousand dollars. Average cremation, five to six thousand dollars. If you're working with a funeral home, a funeral parlor, you'll probably spend at least three thousand dollars.
5: But what if you have no money? A relative passes away in your home. What can you do?
3: This varies state by state and county by county. But if you're on some manner of governmental assistance, uh, that assistance program will negotiate and cover a simple cremation or a burial with the funeral home. Mandy told me it's usually cremation most of the time because the uh, government program will not help pay for a cemetery plot or a headstone. But the real tricky part in this comes not to how it's done, but who gets to make that final determination of your final disposition. It's your next of kin. You know about the next of kin order, right? No, I don't. It's like the presidential succession. So first it's your spouse and then it's your children and then it's your parents, siblings, then grandchildren, then grandparents, then nieces, nephews, etc., Here's funeral director Mandy Stafford again.
7: So I think that is really the biggest red tape, is understanding who has that right to make the decisions. And say there are eight children, and four of them want cremation, and four of them want a traditional casketed service, that's where things can get a little gray, so to say. Um, Because here in Minnesota, we do need one more than half to sign for cremation to take place. And if they can't get that majority?
3: Taylor told me that they just get there. They mediate and they discuss it. And it almost always gets decided within that 72-hour window.
5: So what can I, the currently living, do to prevent this hassle and debate for my next of kin when the time
3: comes? So you want to make it easier for those you love? Yeah. All right. First thing. You have to fill out an advance directive. I'm going to do it as soon as we record this episode, I swear. You can download the forms for your state, fill them out in front of a witness, give a copy to your doctor, to your lawyer, to your parents, to your kids. Keep a note saying you have one in your wallet. That assures your friends and loved ones that what you want to be done with your body will be carried out. And no one has to make that great Hey there,
9: everyone. Hey, folks. The whole Civics 101 team is here in D.C. for a week. That's why you hear cars and stuff whizzing by. Uh, We are in the district to talk to the people that we talk about on a daily basis. And a lot of those people work in the executive branch.
5: That is the largest employer in the world.
9: And a lot of those people work in the civil service where, after the assassination of James Garfield, that's a long story, they take an exam to make sure that they are the right person for their job.
5: But if you run a business, and you're not the federal government, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all, but to match instead with indeed
9: 93 percent of employers agree indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites
5: 23 hires are made on indeed every minute and their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences so the more you use it the better it gets
9: and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash civics
5: Just go to Indeed.com slash civics right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast.
9: Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You
0: need Indeed. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
1: Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
3: You're not finished.
8: Yeah, there's a lot of things that that we don't think about um, because there's especially now in the digital age we're living in, people have so many different accounts and and passwords and usernames and all that. And it's, it's hard to figure out exactly how to close out someone's life. You kind of break it down into two different categories. One would be cancellations and one would be more like asset distribution. So if you're looking at cancellations, something like Netflix, Netflix doesn't have a contract or anything like that. So you can just call Netflix and tell them someone passed away and they'll cancel the account. Because if you were doing that falsely, it would be easy for the person to reinstate it. It's not a big deal. But you want to use caution when you cancel uh, something like an Amazon account or a um, an iTunes account. Because once you do that, you lose all of the assets that were being held by that account. So uh, technically speaking, when you buy a song, air quotes, buy a song on iTunes, you're actually leasing it for your lifetime. Are you kidding me? Like, I don't actually
5: own the copy of A League of Their Own that I paid for.
3: Those Rockford peaches are not yours to aspire in death, Hannah. And my kids could no longer watch all nine seasons of Curious George. (laughs) Google lets you... Choose whatever you want to do with your account when it's been inactive a certain amount of time. Uh, You can let someone else access it or just lock it all, shut it down, and delete everything. And Facebook lets you assign what's called a legacy contact. Phone companies need to be called, appropriately enough. But there's one kind of website that is very persnickety about death.
8: So, so if you have like an online stock account through ETrade or TD Ameritrade or something like that, um, you would you would want to make sure that uh, beforehand. And this is a huge takeaway. And if I could if I could like shake people and say do this, it would be it would be to say. Go into if you have these kinds of accounts. If you have a brokerage account, which is just an account that has um, uh, that you can trade stocks in, or something to that effect, make sure you have a transfer on death filled out. Because uh, you are not required to fill that out when you when you open a brokerage account. You are required to fill out um, a beneficiary for an IRA. But if you've got an online brokerage account, you have to go in specifically and, and fill out a transfer on death form. Um, and a, a big thing there is, is the, the biggest, most important thing in either of those cases is to um, not... Ever make any transactions after someone has died. If you have the username and password for your spouse or your sibling or something like that, if you're the the executor of their estate, whatever, it doesn't matter. Do not go and make changes because the IRS will not look fondly upon uh, a discrepancy between transactions that were made by, quote, someone, (laughs) you know, like by a, a living person and that conflicting with a, a, cer- a death certificate.
5: OK, so now we're into an area that is famously touchy, right? Leaving your assets after death, your will.
9: Right.
3: Did I ever tell you that I had a program on my Apple IIc c when I was a kid called Will Writer? <laughs> and my sister and I wanted to start a will writing business?
5: Why? Were you as children?
4: Yeah. Can you write your own
3: will? Sure you can. There are a ton of YouTube videos with will advice out there, by the way. You can also build your own house, but that doesn't mean you should. A will is an important legal document.
5: When you're left something in a will, does the government take some of that? Is it taxed?
3: This is called an estate tax, and the federal government won't do it unless it is $11.8 million or more that you're left. The state, though, can levy state taxes on that gift at a lower level, but it's still around the million dollar range. However, be ye warned about capital gains tax. So that's like if you're left a house that's worth two hundred and fifty grand and you sell it for two hundred and seventy five, you get taxed on that twenty five thousand dollar difference.
5: Why are wills so complicated? I know.
3: Right. So I asked Leah Plunkett from University of New Hampshire School of Law. Why can't I just write on a piece of paper? I leave everything to my wife and kids and they know what's best. Why are they so tricky?
2: Wills are complicated because we need to make sure that they are made with an understanding by the person who's making them of what they're doing, that they're not being coerced or controlled, but they're being made knowingly and voluntarily and and of free will. It's so crucial that we know that that's really your decision. So I've got a piece of paper and my blue professor pen, you know, on the on the desk right here. If I just write I leave everything to my husband, two kids and dog, they know what's best. You're an appropriate witness because you're not related to me, you don't have a stake in my will. Um but how the heck is, you know, a court or you know, the bank that has the mortgage on our house or any of these other official entities supposed to be able to know that this piece of scrap paper that I scribbled on was really me, that I was really doing it of my own free will. If there aren't certain, I sometimes tell my law students that going to law school is like going to Hogwarts, that there's certain phrases and certain words that are legal terms of art. And if you use them the right way, then magic happens. And it's not flying or unforgivable curses. But you do have the power to alter the outcome of someone's life or an institution's trajectory. These are phrases like, I, Hannah McCarthy, being of sound mind and body. Yeah,
3: in terms like bequest, devise, right of representation, executor, the female version of which was once an executrix, by the way. Hmm. Uh, An executor is the person who carries out the will. And with very few exceptions, your will is going to go through probate, which is a court review, to prove the validity of the will. Probate comes from Latin for to prove... And that process of probate can take months up to years.
5: And there's no way around this?
3: There is a way. And I feel like I'm in a commercial when I'm talking about this stuff. But it's creating a trust instead of using a will to give stuff to someone else. If you create a trust, you can choose possessions and money to give to someone before you die and when you die and after you die. And trusts do not go through probate. They don't go through court.
5: OK, I, I knew a good number of people in college who actually had trusts, but like they wouldn't be able to access them until they were like 21 or 25 sure. or 30. But some of these trusts, tell me if this is an actual legal thing, had stipulations like you have to have graduated from college or you can't get right. in trouble with
3: the law. You can put conditions like that on any gift, will or trust. Um, State Supreme Courts have actually ruled on this. As long as the conditions don't break the law, they are binding and you have to do the thing to get that money. Even things like you have to have an Ivy League diploma or you cannot marry outside the faith.
5: Wow, that's really kind of restrictive and manipulative.
3: But it's legal, man. It's the law.
5: Can I just ask you, Nick, after all of this, have you decided on your final disposition?
3: Hmm. I haven't yet, Um, but there is something that Ken Iserson from University of Arizona, he said to me, that opened up a possibility I hadn't even considered.
7: There's so much suffering in creation as we know it. We remember today those who've made a difference in the relieving of that suffering by generosity that will never die.
4: I always have felt that uh, the people who donate their whole body to science are really benefactors uh, for humanity.
3: If you contact your local medical school and you start the process, which also requires signing forms in front of witnesses, you can leave your body to medical science. Once it's been used, it's been studied, and it's been dissected, it's cremated, the cremains are sent back to you, usually for free.
4: You you know, there's one other thing that's associated with it. Uh, I think it started at the University of Arizona Medical School, and it's gone other places since. But the medical students actually have a service for all the people who donated their bodies uh, for their anatomical training. And it's rather moving. The whole class uh, gets together and it's led by uh, diverse re- religious people.
9: I never knew your name, never knew where you were from. I never knew your face, never knew your voice. I committed every twist and turn of each and every vein and artery to memory. Touched every
3: nerve. So, even though the way we think about death has changed so much in America, I asked Taylor, who deals with death every day, if she had any advice for the rest of us
8: definitely don't shield your children from, from death. Don't shield anyone from it because, uh, we're, we're pretty well distanced now as a society from death. We have someone who comes to our house and, and takes the body away and there, we don't have to be, uh, close, closely involved as, as even two generations before us were. So, uh, I just encourage people because I spend a lot of time working on grief and those those few days that that acute loss period is really so vital framing how your grief experience is going to go for the rest of your life so so don't back away from it kind of lean into the the rites and ceremonies that happen when someone dies and always go to the
3: funeral Mandy told me that it helps with the grieving process. And she told me a story about the one time she didn't go to a colleague's and how she still doesn't have closure in that death. Ken told me that it's great, maybe even preferable, to not have a funeral at all, but have a memorial service like months or weeks after to celebrate the life of that person.
5: Okay, I have to make an advance directive, write a will, write down passwords, and tell my next of kin not to cancel my Amazon. Right. I have a lot of tasks to do before I die.
3: May it be a long time, my friend.
5: So that's it. I think we're done. Cradle to grave.
3: Yeah, almost. Just one last word to kind of put the hat on the snowman. Before I said goodbye to Dan, he said he wanted to put in one final salvo, uh, a defense for these things that you and I consider onerous. All of
6: these things we're talking about are about bureaucracy, about the federal government putting red tape in your way. And we hate bureaucracy. We hate that red tape. But turns out this is actually a really good thing. So think about it. If I go to the DMV, there's a person in front. That person hands me a ticket, tells me what line to get in. If Bill Gates goes to the DMV, he goes to the front, that person gives him the same ticket. Let's say that person really loves Bill Gates, loves windows. I'm sure that person exists. They go out, they say they want to help Bill Gates. What can they do? Nothing. They give them the same ticket. They are constrained. They have really no way of doing anything other than the one thing they're allowed to do. The whole idea of bureaucracy is it's small d democratic. Everyone gets treated in the exact same way because the bureaucrats don't have any discretion. They don't have any ability to treat people differently. So you and me and Bill Gates and the person's mother-in-law and everybody gets treated the exact same way when they show up. So bureaucracy, while we hate it, while it's terrible because no one has discretion, they can't help you out if something goes wrong. Guess what? The most democratic part of our government.
3: So here's to bureaucracy, a word that I can just never spell.
5: Me neither.
3: Really? You also had, had that one. That's true. I can it never do It kills me yeah. the red squiggle. I'm like, today I'm not going to get the red squiggle, yep. and there it is.
5: <laughs> Nick, it was fun exploring the life of an American with you. The
3: pleasure was more than half mine. I agree, Hannah that'll do it for this episode in this series today's episode was produced by me nick capodice with you hannah mccarthy thank you
5: oh you're welcome our staff includes jackie helbert daniela vidal ali and ben henry erica janik is our executive producer and owns a non-digital copy of a league of their own.
3: Maureen McMurray rides a pale horse.
5: Music in this episode by Elephant Funeral, Blue Dot Sessions, Seb Wildwood, Coconut Monkey Rocket, and Chris Sabrisky.
3: And Scott Grattan did this inspirational song you listen to here. Don't you just want to walk forcefully up a mountain and stand there with your hands on your hips?
5: Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio, and is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
3: But when it comes to dealing with this red tape about death, maybe we're just thinking about it the wrong way. So death is a sort of construct that we fret and worry about a lot, but it doesn't really change anything when we worry about it. This is Albert Camus. I'm Albert Camus. I'm an existentialist. I've written a lot of books on death and dying. Uh, most famously, The Stranger. And some other ones. I don't know what they are. Hell... I don't know them all, stop He told me that all this fretting that we're constantly doing, worrying about this thing that's going to eventually happen, has no real benefit. When we ask ourselves what makes someone happy or how can I not die, that's when misery happens. Misery happens when we search for happiness and meaning. Uh, He's a line I like a lot, Hannah, which is that uh, trying to imagine death is like uh, trying to hold water uh, perpetually in your hands.
2: That's so
5: interesting.
3: It is, it is. You're going to let go of that water eventually, right? You're not going to be able to hold on to it, like, forever.
5: That's really nice. I never would have expected that.
3: And he loves our show, strangely enough.
9: I love your show. I really do. I really enjoy it.
3: I think now more than ever, you know, kids especially. Maybe tell them to Stop reading my books in seventh grade. And I don't really need to hear that mother
9: died today. You know what I mean?
0: Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt collection at Ashley brings you one of a kind body conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool to the touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids.